This episode is brought to you in part by D6 Conference, a pivotal event for family ministry dedicated to nurturing discipleship based on Deuteronomy 6. Empower your ministry team and family by joining us. Register now at d6conference.com. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put it into my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. What you know good, Ann Camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. All right, well, unfortunately for you and me, uh, our dear friend, our co-host of this show, Christopher Butler, is not here today. Now, last time he wasn't here, I joked around and said that he had gotten fired. It was a joke, guys. Uh, That's not the case this time. He has not gotten fired. He is on vacation with his beautiful family. As you know, he just recently had another son. uh, And so it is a vacation that is well-deserved, and we hope that he is having fun. But I am told that he will be back uh, next week, and he will be back with a vengeance. So we look forward to getting our friend uh, back here to the church politics podcast, but you guys probably know that we missed last week as well. It's just been a really busy season and, and for good reason, right? It's one of those things that you're kind of getting what you ask for. So as I get what I, what I asked for, I don't want to complain about it. Um, because we've had some wonderful opportunities for the end campaign just to spread our framework and spread the gospel and how to apply the gospel to our civic engagement really all over the country. And to very diverse groups. So last week I was in San Francisco and one of the places I went to was Walnut Creek Presbyterian Church, uh, white evangelical church primarily. Um, And really just had a a great time. I preached twice, spoke to some preachers that Monday and and, and gave kind of like a keynote later that night and just very welcoming, loved the Ann Campaign's framework. Um, hospitality was just outstanding. I just want to I want to thank the folks at Walnut Creek for that experience, for the invitation, because here's the thing. Inviting a group of people that you don't necessarily know. I mean, you've heard of their work and you might have read the book, but inviting them to speak on faith and politics is risky. Right. And so I am honored anytime somebody entrusts the and campaign to do that. Um, now, the beauty of the Ann campaign, though, so we go, we're in San Francisco, Walnut Creek Presbyterian. Then we go to, then I go to Chicago. I get a chance to preach at Salem Baptist Church, which is probably the blackest church that you're going to find in America. And as I was going from one place to the other, I had to take a moment to really sit with the fact that there aren't many organizations that can go from a kind of white evangelical Presbyterian place to a black Baptist church within 24 hours 
and bring basically the same message, the same framework. And I think that says a lot about the ministry that God has blessed the Ann campaign with. We are in some very diverse spaces that a lot of other people don't or can't go into. Um, That's a blessing. That's a blessing to be able to say, hey, these two different churches may have people in them that are going to vote very differently. But because I'm coming with something that's gospel centered, because I'm coming with guiding principles that are straight out of the Bible, it's the same messages. It's, it's, It's the same conversation that all Christians need to be having. But I realize that doesn't happen all that often. And so I do, you know, want to say that I am just thankful to be in a place, to be in an organization that's able to cover that kind of ground. Because truthfully, the only way the church comes together is when we have organizations and communicators and leaders who can speak to different parts of the church with the same message. And that's one of the problems that we have. We have folks who just want to speak to the white evangelical church or just want to speak to the black church and leave it at that. It has to be bigger than that. Cause if we have the same gospel, yes, we, we all need to be challenged. And that's the other thing the Ann campaign does. We don't go into any of these spaces and leave that space without a challenge. Like we don't go into spaces and just pander to that audience. That that's one of our primary principles. When we go into a space, we're going to challenge that space. So I'm not going to go into a white evangelical space and not talk about the importance of social justice. I'm not going to go into a black Baptist space and not talk about the importance of making sure that we have a prophetic independence from the Democratic Party, from progressivism and all that other stuff. What's the point of us going into those spaces if we're not going to leave with a challenge, but also with with under an understanding of how the gospel should bring us all together? So I'm thankful uh, to the pastors that and leaders that give give us an opportunity to speak into that, that trust us enough to challenge their congregation while at the same time trying to show a path towards more faithful engagement. That is a blessing. And I do not take that for granted because I know that it is very, very rare. Um, and we're just going to try try to keep building on the ministry that God has given us. And so thank all of you out there who give us those opportunities, because uh, we think it's really important for the church to come together. We can't come together if we got two, three, four different messages on how to apply the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. And no matter what our identity is, there's a word in it for all of us that we should all have an appreciation for. All right. So uh, we got a lot to get into. But before we get into it, I, as always, I want to give a shout out to all our patrons to all our supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. We touch on some very tough topics and we appreciate and I think that's why you appreciate what we're doing. We don't run from anything, Um, but you guys continue to support us, continue to want to hear this content. And we thank you. If you are watching this on YouTube and for some reason, nobody wants to watch this on YouTube. Everybody likes to, you know, they like to uh, catch it on their iTunes or they like to catch it on on Spotify. We're really trying to get some people to watch it on YouTube because the crowd over there is really light and not really representative of of how big our general audience is for for this podcast. 
So even if you don't watch it on YouTube, maybe you send it to somebody, maybe you send a YouTube link to somebody who hasn't seen it before. That would be helpful for helpful for us. But if you are watching on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe. Y'all know how the algorithm goes. We need help with that. Check us out when you get a chance. All right. So grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but prepare to think like a Christian. And as always, I want to start off with some scripture. All right. Now, you know, we like to start off with these scriptures. It it gives us a kind of brings us into the context of what we're talking about. But this is not a Bible study. okay? so I know some people want this to be completely based on scripture. I love scripture when I teach and preach. It's going to be that this is not a Bible study. Right. The Church Politics Podcast is not a Bible study, but we will uh, uh, involve scripture in what we're doing. So let's first go to Romans 13, verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1. And it says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Okay, let's stay around the same area and go to Romans 12. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. That's a scripture we can really hear, but not really internalize. It seems very simple, but I'm not sure that we always internalize what that scripture is saying. Well, let's get to it. When a police officer violates the public trust through things like excessive force, uh, harassment, or other forms of corruption, I don't think we should take that as a small matter. In fact, that is not only a violation of justice, it's a violation of moral order. When a police officer acts in that way, They are disordering society. They're making it harder for our society to operate because they're taking away the trust necessary for our society to operate in a constructive way. When an officer unjustly shoots someone, I would say that it does hit differently than a civilian on civilian shooting, not because a civilian on civilian shooting is good or the person automatically comes back to life. There's still a life law, so it's terrible. But there's something different when it's a police officer shooting someone else. And why is that? The difference is the officer is a public servant. The officer is a public servant who's been granted special authority, police powers, special authority to protect and serve. And that power has been abused to the detriment of the public. That's why that particular shooting is even worse. Both bad, both terrible. We're not going to make light of the other kind of shootings, but that's the one that 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 is tough, okay? The key here is they're in a position of authority. And that authority must be acknowledged by the officer as he goes about his daily responsibilities. And by the people, by the community, the authority comes with a higher standard of responsibility. All right. 
both sides of this conversation have to acknowledge and abide by the implications of that authority. Now, according to Romans 13 that I just read, as a general proposition, Christians sin when they don't respect that authority. Let me say that again. As a general proposition, when you don't respect the authority of a police officer who is an officer of the government, you're in sin. That's a sin to be disrespectful in that way. All right. Now, I say this to give context to a situation that I want to analyze right now. All right. So 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 pay attention. I think this situation is is, is important for us to think about situations like this and, and what the implications are. So there is a, a young brother named King Randall, who is I think he lives in Albany, Georgia. Uh, and I also think he's doing an extraordinary job. Um, and he's only I think I think he's only like 24, 25, but he's dedicated his life to educating, mentoring and developing young black boys. That's his passion. That's what he does day in and day out. He's the founder of the Life Preparatory School for Boys and the X for Boys. Okay, that's his program. He's frustrated some people on the left because he doesn't necessarily espouse the progressive orthodoxy. And, you know, some people, I guess, because he's a young black man, expect that he should or that he has, you know, he's bound to do that for for some reason. Um, But he goes against that at at times. And and we know that in certain circles and among many of my peers and many of his peers, you know, that orthodoxy, progressive orthodoxy is all the rage. That's what you're supposed to follow. But like Malcolm X, he has what I would call a self-help philosophy. Right. And and he's he's come under fire for saying things like stop waiting on the government to change your situation. Do it yourself. Okay, that's his philosophy. And while, you know, I do believe and I don't know that he doesn't. I do believe the government has a robust uh, role in society. I also think that some people do wait on the government and wait on politics to change things that they could actually be changing within their community themselves, that they actually you know, if you if you become part of a uh, mediating institution, you might have a greater effect on the issue than the government would have. Right. So for me, I say, yes, the government has a uh, a substantive and significant role to play. But I'm not going to sit here and wait for the government or, or politics to change everything in my community when there's things that I can be doing that are actually more effective. So I think that w- was the point that he's make- making. But some people get upset uh, when you say that they want electoral politics to be everything and electoral politics is not everything. But I was impressed with him because he teaches the kids at his school not only about character and virtue and things of that nature, um, but also a lot of practical skills. You know, a lot of things concerning business etiquette or even how to change a tire, how to change your brakes. And recently he posted a video on social media where he was teaching the boys in his program how to conduct themselves um, when they get pulled over by the police. Okay. And so I'm going to show this, this quick clip. It's just over a minute of him kind of teaching them how to conduct themselves when they get pulled over. So check, check this clip out real quick. First thing I want to do is already have my stuff ready. Okay. Yes, sir. You don't want to get to the, the freaking car 
And when he gets to the car, you gotta go fumbling around looking for stuff, right? Why, do, why don't we want to fumble around looking for stuff? Exactly. They're gonna feel unsafe. You understand? Yes, sir. And regardless of whether they should or shouldn't feel unsafe, that makes somebody feel unsafe. You fumbling around because things happen, right? Yes, sir. So when they get there, the first thing you wanna do is already have your license ready and have your hands on the steering wheel. You understand? Yes, yes sir. sir. Have your hands on the steering wheel. Why? Because before they don't think you reach for them. Yeah, so you're not reaching for stuff, right? Yes, yes sir. sir. All right, cool. And another thing I wanna do. I'm gonna let all my windows down, okay? I ain't got nothing to hide, right? Yes, so sir. I'm gonna let all my windows down in the car, and if it's nighttime, I'm gonna turn the car light on so everybody, so he can see everything in the car, right? Yes, sir. Why am I doing that? For him, thank you. You trying to hide nothing, or somebody trying to hide something for you? Exactly. Everybody feels safe, right? Yes, sir. So we already starting the, the the stop off great. He probably in a good mood that I done let the window down, I done turned the lights on. He probably in a better mood now, right? Yes, sir. All right, so boom, he gonna come to the car. Yes, sir. All right, cool. So he's going to get my license. He may or may not go back to the car, which they usually do. They're going to basically see, check your name, see if you got any warrants, if your license suspended, blah, blah, blah. But you sit tight and just wait for him to finish. Good? Yes, sir. All right, cool. He's coming back, bring my license. He's probably going to give me a ticket for not having my seatbelt on. Now, what's the wrong thing to do if I'm getting pulled over and he come he come up to the car? Mm -hmm. Nah, what, run? We're not going to run. And what what's another thing we're not going to do? Talk. Talk, talk, talk back. Cussing, talking smack, all that stuff, right? Yes, sir. We're not doing none of that number if we get pulled up. We're not talking smack, we're not cussing, we're not telling them what our right is, blase, blase, blah. We're not doing none of that. You understand? Yes, sir. We're trying to get home, and he's trying to get home. Cool? Yes, sir. So we're just trying to make sure everybody. So you see the clip. I mean, in my opinion, um, pretty harmless. I don't, I don't see why anybody would be upset about it, but social media, doing what social media does, a certain sect of Twitter folks on the left, certain sect of even black Twitter was very unhappy with Randall, with King Randall after this, after he released this video. Um, some even went so far as to say that it was anti-black to teach kids to respect the police and make sure that the police officer felt safe, right? They felt like, oh, that was a compromise or that, you know, it somehow... It's hurting the dignity of the children and the safety of the children to teach them that. So basically, some folks were saying that it's okay uh, for people to be adversarial with the police since they're going to be unsafe anyway. Right. Some folks will say, hey, there are people and it's true. There are people who have treated the police with respect and still gotten hurt unnecessarily. Very true. I don't deny that at all. But common sense would tell you that that's not. You know, it's going to lessen your chances of getting into an altercation if you treat people with respect, common sense. And to me, this is the left, some on the left, not everybody on the left. This is some on the left showing the lack of wisdom that I've often talked about, showing the lack of common sense that I've often talked about, showing that they're more concerned with spiting the system or more concerned with spiting what can be seen as conservative or traditional than they are about virtue or thriving. That's what I see here. I mean, y'all know me. I'm all for substantive reform. I'm all for substantive acts that bring about accountability and reform. But this ain't it. Right. Uh, some folks would rather be performative and put on a show than to do anything that actually helps the community long term. This is not going in on a police officer when you get pulled over is not the way to prove any point or to improve anything. All right. 
from what I can tell, and and I follow this dude on social media. I don't know him personally, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that straight up. I follow him on social media, and for what I from what I can tell, Randall's number one priority in this context is keeping the boys safe, making sure they get home safely. Because you can't do anything else for your community, for your mom and nobody else, if you don't make it home. And that's real for black boys. And that's a concern that a lot of black parents have. Will they make it home? That's his number one concern. The best way to keep them safe is to make sure that they acknowledge police authority and conduct themselves respectfully. That's the best way. Should they know their rights? I think they should know their rights. And I don't have a problem with them uh, in a certain situation, in a certain way, stating what their rights are. I don't have a problem with that. But I don't think being respectful to the police officers and acknowledging their authority, that's not respectability. That's not the thing that, that should be attacked. That's common sense and common respect. To his point, Nothing good comes out of arguing with police officers in that situation. There's nothing to win there. There's nothing to be gained. If they do something wrong, then if you record, you have a right to record it. What all that stuff is fine. You have recourse for that and you got to believe you have recourse for that. But I've seen too many people basically telling young people to assume that the officer is going to come at them wrong. And then to preemptively catch an attitude with the with the officer and tell him that everything that's on your mind, even before he's really even said anything to you. Why would you tell somebody, especially a young person, why would you put in their mind that it's OK to prematurely escalate that situation? That is completely irresponsible but we have people who call themselves leaders who call themselves influencers who will put young people in a bad position just so they can spout off and move forward with their narrative that that's in a lot of ways that's where our discourse is it's not about practical concerns none of that stuff is about strategy they're not being strategic it's never about taking the high road and, and just, again, making it home. When you're telling people it's all it's OK to come at a police officer when you've gotten pulled over to give them all the attitude that you have. It's not about anything positive. It's not about anything virtuous. It's about what I call. Empty defiance. Empty defiance. Empty defiance is about taking the opportunity, any and every opportunity, opportunities like this, to express exactly how much contempt you have for the system or you have for whoever you consider to be the other side. It's about making some hollow identity-based statement to prove a prideful and petulant point that gets you nowhere. The messenger is usually trying to show the other party that they don't deserve any civility or respect. And here's the thing about it. There's incentive to do this. Most people do it, do this, especially if they get a chance to record it, because they know that they will get applause from their ideological tribe. They love you will get an on you will you will become a star. You will get your 15 minutes of fame when you show out and disrespect somebody that your tribe doesn't like. 
We love to see people belittle and disrespect the system or our opponents because we feel that those people are automatically based on their identity in the wrong or they're automatically evil. And so we love to see one another go in on, on, on those folks, even if it's putting us in a bad situation, even if it really doesn't prove anything worth proving. Empty defiance, again, isn't tied to any virtue. It's a barren and bitter form of resistance that is dangerous. It's a civic temper tantrum. And to teach people that that's okay rather than having respect doesn't make sense to me. How dare we teach young people to value performance over civility and respect? If the officer doesn't deserve respect, but you treat him respectfully anyway, you haven't lost anything. You still maintain your integrity. You still maintain your dignity. And whether we like it or not. Police officers are in a position of authority. And this is coming from somebody who has been racially profiled. I mean, I remember I was riding in my grandfather's old old car in Nashville and just got pulled over for no reason. And the officer really had no reason to pull me over, you know, eventually let me go. But it was clear that it was just racial profiling because I was in a certain part of town with a car that didn't look like it it should be there. And I was black. I'm not you'll never hear me say that doesn't happen. And it does happen. But for me to just go in and cuss out the officer wasn't going to get me anywhere. And what was that going to do to my spirit? Right. That kind of spite. That kind of bitterness. I understand the righteous indignation. I understand the anger when it happens. But we've got to make sure that our spirit doesn't go in a way that becomes bitter and becomes nasty because of what has been done to us. It is better in that situation to show respect. Know your rights. If you need to if you do need to say something about your rights rather than just, you know, running your mouth, just trying to put it out there, then fine. That's cool. But we got to do better because, again, whether you like it or not, police officers are in a position of authority. And we cannot have a just society. If you care about justice, you will not have a just society if you don't treat people in authority with respect. Part of social justice is making sure that that people who are officers of the peace, officers of justice are treated in that way. Are treated based on their position. And and also to hold them accountable when they violate that public trust. That's how it works. But antagonizing the police and shooting off is not the answer. It's empty and it's counterproductive. And let me say this, since it's still Black History Month, it's the opposite of the strategy and the spirit of the civil rights movement. It's the opposite of what most black elders taught us to do. So while some people want to act like this is the black way to act, which is, which is ridiculous. It actually goes against what our leaders for years and years have been saying in a lot of instances. Now they didn't say you can't protect yourself, right? But you got to be very careful when you walk into these situations and you start antagonizing police officers. All right. And this is something again, that I have to deal with myself. I have three sons. My sons 
are taught to obey the police. Right. We even we even have a habit of if we're at a um, some type of outdoor event or whatever, and there's police officers there, they'll go up to police officers and tell them, thank you for your service. And that's not because every police officer is good, but because as far as it depends on us, we will live at peace with everyone. Because that's what the Bible told us to do. I'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And I am back on the Church Politics Podcast. I want to talk now about student loan forgiveness, okay? Um, According to Politico, President Joe Biden on Wednesday announced that $1.2 billion of student uh, debt relief for nearly 153,000 borrowers uh, was moving out soon. All right, that's their new initiative. One point two billion dollars for about one hundred and fifty three thousand students. And he's going to be sending an email to those students, letting them know what he has done. Smart move. Right. It's just like when when uh, Trump uh, sent the covid checks, he made sure that they knew that it came from him. Whatever. You, you, You know, that's that's what politicians do. And I get it. All right. Now, the administration's latest, this latest loan uh, forgiveness uh, initiative covers borrowers who are enrolled in Biden's new loan repayment program. So they initially borrowed $12,000 or less, $12,000 in loans and less, and have been repaying their debt for at least 10 years. Right. So if you're in that program, if you qualify, this may be available to you. The administration says that it uh, has now approved loan discharges for nearly one hundred and thirty eight billion and nearly thirty three point nine million borrowers through dozens, dozens of administrative actions since coming into office. So, again, you got the one point two billion for this new initiative, but over the whole time, they're saying that their discharges have come to amount to about $138 billion for 3.9 million uh, folks who had loan debt. That's, n- that's nothing small. Um, 
you know, this has been a debate. I know a lot of people have been talking about it. Should it happen? Should it not happen? But this isn't a small amount of money. That's not a small amount of people who are going to be impacted by it. And I think people do need to recognize this is something that the Biden administration is now seems to be more so committed to. And there's been a a conversation before this of whether they really were committed to something that they actually ran on, but uh, didn't seem to be fully committed, at least initially. And now they're coming into it a, a little stronger now. Good thing, bad thing. I'm I'm of two minds on this. Okay, um, when it comes to loan debt relief, for one, I know so many people who need relief. So many people who you know, whose student loan debt is crushing them right now. I mean, it's it's maybe the number one stressor in their lives, right? Um. It's keeping some people from starting families. It's keeping some people from buying homes. I think that that's enough for all of us to be concerned about it and what it means and how we can make this better. How do we find solutions to this? It's not a small deal. In fact, I would say, you know, there's a lot of people who can't really afford decent housing, even after going to college or struggle to find decent housing because they got to pay this loan debt back or people whose credit has become just awful because they missed some payments. Uh, So on that end, I I understand why it's going to be helpful. I don't think it's a small thing. It's going to help some people out. All right. That's the first part. But here's my issues. And I have two issues uh, uh, surrounding this. This debt relief doesn't solve the actual problem. And so after they pay this, you know, two point whatever billion dollars, the problem actually doesn't start. And, and, and maybe paying this money in the way that they're doing it might actually feed into the overall problem. And I've talked about this before, but the overall problem is bad policy from Congress, bad national federal policy that created incentives for tuition inflation. That, that's what the real problem is. Tuition is too high. And in fact, tuition is so high that it doesn't at all correlate to the actual jobs that our people are getting once they get the degrees. So what happened was some politicians came together and said, you know what? It's a good thing to put more loan money out there for people who want to go to school. So the policies that we had made it easier to get a loan to go to school. I don't know if that's a that's not a bad thing. We do want more people to go to school. But when you just put more loan money out there, they didn't put more money to help you. They put more loan money out there. And so once the universities got this, knew that there was more loan money available, what did they do? They raised tuition prices because now the borrower is is more able to pay, is more able to get a loan to pay it. Not necessarily more able to pay the loan, but more able to pay tuition initially. And so what you have, you have this inflation. That's crazy where people are going to school for four years and paying for it for 30 years. That doesn't make sense. That's a racket. Why would you pay for 30 years? I mean, what's the point? I mean, it almost is like, what's the point? And I I support people going to college, so I don't want to I don't want to say that, but. I get why people are like, look, 
I'm doing this for four years and there's certain degrees that it's going to make it very difficult for you to even pay it off in that 30 year period. It just doesn't make sense. That is a broken system. We desperately need reform when it comes to student loans. But instead of getting the reform, we're getting what is at best a Band-Aid, right? Because even though we pay these people that uh, that have the student loans now, including myself, I have student loans, even though we're paying them off, the people who are in college now are still paying these exorbitant uh, tuition costs, and they're going to be in the same situation. So are we going to keep doing the same thing? Are we actually going to fix the problem? And so that's probably that's one of my biggest issues that I wouldn't say it's smaller than my second issue with it, though. My second issue is. This is very expensive, like I want reform and instead we get this very expensive Band-Aid. That actually doesn't help most Americans. Most Americans, let me keep this to keep this in mind, most Americans do not go to college. So while I think the people there are a lot of people who need this help who are in college, most Americans will have no benefit to this and they are paying for it. Right. None of this is free. Right. This is this is taxpayer money. And so people who didn't go to college have to pay for this, but they're not really paying for a solution. They're paying for a Band-Aid that's going to be, you know, where the issue is going to be recreated every year with every group of people who get new new loans each each year. But we can't fix it. We don't have the will to fix it. And the lobbies that are keeping this system in place are very strong. And it doesn't look I hate to say it. It doesn't look like we're going to get any solutions anytime soon. I think. Uh, Marco Rubio had, you know, has come up with some good solutions. There's others, but there's just no will for number one, the parties to work together to get it done, but just no will to push back against the system to get these changes. And so, again, I think a lot of people need this. I'm happy that this will help a lot of people. But in the long term. It still leaves us with a broken system and actually feeds into that system. So whatever, you know, Biden ran on it. People voted for some people voted for him based on that. And he has to keep the promise. Uh, I'm not necessarily against it, but I, I, I caution us on thinking that this is more than really just a mandate day that's going to keep being needed as time goes on. I'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And I am back on the Church Politics uh, Podcast. Man, I forgot where I was. On the Church Politics Podcast. You know I'm missing my brother Chris uh, Butler who could not make it today, but I hope he's having a good time. I doubt he's missing me, right? You know, I miss him. I wish he was here with us today. But something tells me if he's on vacation, he probably ain't thinking nothing about me right now, which is good. I can can dig that. You know what I mean? But that's probably not his... A major concern at this moment, although I, th- I hope he'll still take the time to check out the podcast, even though he's gone. Um, we'll, we'll see about that. Something else interesting happened. Well, well, let me start with this. We just talked about the, you know, Biden and the loan, uh, the student loan debt relief that he's given. And again, the reason that it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not a solution. It's not a true solution. And the reason that we can't get a solution 
is because Congress does not do their job. I believe that in general, our Congress is inept. They're hyper-partisan. Um, they're still making money on, you know, insider information and all that stuff. They do that well. They can get that job done. But few other things are they really just doing well. They do well on Twitter, selling wolf tickets on Twitter, but they're just not doing a good job. And, and I think one of the problems that we have is they have the wrong incentives. Do are, are we, and this is on us, and I talked about this not long ago, are we giving them the incentives to do better, to actually get their jobs done? Or do we just keep voting the same people in over and over and over again and expect a different result? All of this comes back to I blame us more than I blame them. So let's think about it. What could we do to give them an incentive to do better? Well, one thing, one thing certain groups have been talking about are term limits. Don't let somebody stay in Congress for 30 something years and do the same thing over and over again. Put a term limit on it and move forward. Right. So some people are proposing an amendment to Article five of the Constitution so that they will not be in there for this long. And you get new people and the new people have incentives to get the job done because they're not going to be there forever. And their only incentive isn't just to get reelected. It's actually to do the job. And so um, actually Ron DeSantis and uh, Florida's uh, legislature are making this proposal. So I want to uh, let y'all listen to this quick video of Ron DeSantis talking about his proposal to um, uh, get these term limits. I want to thank Rex for uh, for convening and meeting some of the senators. Uh, one of the things that uh, I did back in the day when I was a U.S. congressman was sponsor a constitutional amendment for term limits for members of Congress. Now, as you can imagine, that went over like a lead balloon amongst people that were already U.S. congressmen. But uh, we have, it's been something that I've advocated for a long time, having traveled the country in the last year, the number of people that have asked about support for term limits uh, is incredible. Uh, it was something that came up all the time. And so we in Florida had certified many years ago uh, and a proposed amendment under Article 5 of the Constitution, which states are permitted to do, uh, for term limits. We've do, our legislature's doing it again this year. Uh, there's a total of six states who've recently done this. I was just in Indiana today meeting with some of the senators there. Their House has done it. I think their Senate's going to do it too. Uh, North Carolina, I believe one of the Houses has done it. So I was able to meet with some of the senators here because I think this is something that the people in the states have the ability to propose changes to discipline Washington. The Founding Fathers structured the Constitution like that for a reason. Uh, I think it's something that would get huge support. And the one thing I've noticed is it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, Independent, male, female, white, black, rich, poor, people support term limits for members of Congress. Uh, we've seen what's happened up there. It's been really poor performance for decades now. The incentives are not right. We need to change the incentives term limits is one way to do it. And so my hope is that that states, uh, particularly states that want to see big changes in Washington, will use the power that they have to advance these really important proposals 
uh, like term limits. But we have the ability in the states working together uh, to propose some some really important changes uh, that are going to be beneficial to this country. So so thanks for having me. Uh, we appreciate it. And I'm happy to. You know, I'll be honest with you. I think term limits would have a major impact on how Congress operates. I think it'd be one of those things that takes away a lot of bad incentives, which is the reason which are the reasons that a lot just doesn't get done, that we have major problems that are clear problems. And for some reason, we can talk trash, we can do all this other stuff, but we just don't take care of the problem. And that needs to change. So I wonder what you guys think about uh, this type of um, reform. As I talked about Congressman Ro Khanna, uh, this is part of his major reforms. He, you know, he's trying to reform some of the corruption in Congress. And this is part of his reform, which would be which would be term limits. Here's the thing to me, and this, you know, uh, DeSantis mentions this, it's part, it's a nonpartisan issue. It should be a nonpartisan issue. Now, I, I thought it was interesting that Ron DeSantis brought this up because I wanted to use that to challenge y'all. Obviously, I've had a lot of critiques of Ron DeSantis, but one of the things that we teach or we talk about with the AND campaign is if somebody's right on something, even if you disagree with them on something else, you should admit that. And I think Ron DeSantis is right about this. And whether I agree with him on other stuff or not, I would help him on something like this because it's the right thing to do. And so I'd like to ask the Democrats in the audience, would you be willing to work with Ron DeSantis on an issue like this? Or are you so partisan that you would not work with him at all because you just don't like him or you don't like what he says on other issues? If that's the case, then you're exactly you're doing exactly what they do in Congress, making the same mistakes. In fact, I don't know how we change any of these major issues that we have unless we're willing to work with people that we don't agree with on other issues. That's how democracy works. Unfortunately, democracy is not working because we refuse to work in that way. That's part of democracy building. So so how do you feel about that? Would you work with somebody or, or the Republicans that are listening to this? If this proposal came from Hillary Clinton or somebody like that, would you say, regardless of how I feel about you on other stuff, I'll work with you on this simply because it's right. I think that's how we should react. Unfortunately, that's not always how we act. And we certainly haven't given Congress the incentive to act in that way. Well, that's all I have for you today. Next time I see you, I will be with my man, uh, Chris Butler. So I know you'll be looking forward to that. But as always, Ann Camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing and neither faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp, I'll holler at you. Yeah, Lord.